Welcome to this Sunday's chapel service, which revolves around the theme of foolishness. The night has passed, and the day lies open before us. Let us pray with one heart and mind. As we rejoice in the gift of this new day, so may the light of your presence, O God, set our hearts on fire with love for you, now and forever. Amen. A reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The message about Christ's death on the cross is nonsense to those who are being lost, but for us who are being saved, it is God's power. The scripture says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and set aside the understanding of the scholars. So then, where does that leave the wise or the scholars or the skillful debaters of this world? God has shown that this world's wisdom is foolishness. For God in his wisdom made it impossible for people to know him by means of their own wisdom. Instead, by means of their so-called foolish message we preach, God decided to save those who believe. Jews want miracles for proof, and Greeks look for wisdom. As for us, we proclaim the crucified Christ, a message that is offensive to the Jews and nonsense to the Gentiles. But for those who God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, this message is Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God for that seems to be God's foolishness, is wiser than the human wisdom, and what seems to be God, God's weakness is stronger than human strength. I'm always a little bit troubled by what Paul says in our reading today, or rather, troubled by how easy it is to misuse it. It seems to the untutored ear to diss wisdom and uphold foolishness. With the sages, the scholars, the debaters and philosophers, just flunkies and wallers in the school of fools, ruled by the crucified Jew, Christ. What does it mean by God's foolishness being wiser than human wisdom? Is it just... Or what? I reread Mark's Gospel this week. It's a story of foolishness, a series of disasters from beginning to end. The family of Jesus in chapter 3 of Mark come to arrest him because they say he's mad. And he says of his mother, she's not my mother, and of his brothers and sisters, they're not my brothers and sisters. Scribes come from Jerusalem, also in chapter 3, and they say he's possessed by the ruler of the demons. A crowd in the next chapter are outsiders, and the comment about them is that they look and look but see nothing, they listen and listen but understand nothing, they don't turn to God and they're not forgiven. The chief priests, elders and scribes condemn Jesus to death as a blasphemer. The crowd in Jerusalem prefers Barabbas, a murderer. Pilate, the Roman governor, agrees with them in order to satisfy the mob that he should be put to death. What about the disciples? Surely they've got to have some understanding. Surely they'll remain loyal to him. They've got the secret of the kingdom of God, haven't they? No, they don't. Mark portrays the disciples as failures almost from the beginning of the book to the end. Every time it says they're afraid, it means they lack understanding. Every time it says they're amazed or astonished, it means they don't believe. They run away when Jesus is arrested. One of them, leaving his clothes behind, preferring nakedness 
to being with Jesus. And then this happens. A reading from Mark's Gospel. At noon, the whole country was covered with darkness, which lasted for three hours. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud shout, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why did you abandon me? Some of the people there heard him and said, Listen, he is calling for Elijah. One of them ran up with a sponge, soaked it in cheap wine and put it on the end of a stick. Then he held it up to Jesus' lips and said, Wait, let us see if Elijah is coming to bring him down from the cross. With a loud cry, Jesus died. The curtain hanging in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The army officer who was standing there in front of the cross saw how Jesus had died. This man was really the son of God, he said. Some women were there, looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of the younger James and of Joseph, and Salome. They had followed Jesus while he was in Galilee and had helped him. Many other women who had come to Jerusalem with him were there also. Here ends the reading. Jesus' final words in Mark's book are the unanswered question, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The hero of the tale, the man who is God who is man, is strung up and killed. A crucified Messiah, offensive to the Jews, nonsense to the Gentiles, foolishness writ large. It's the vogue at the moment to say, ah, but the women got it right. They didn't abandon Jesus. Well, they were there while he died, but in reality, a little better than the 12 men. In spite of the predictions that he'd be raised after three days, they come to anoint a corpse on the very day that he's predicted resurrection. We're told what their thoughts are. They're worried about moving the stone. They're wrong about the stone because it's been moved already. And they're wrong about the body because Jesus has been raised. He's not there. The young man in white tells them, you'll see him in Galilee as he told you. What had he told them? He told them that they would see the Son of Man coming in glory. But like the men, the women flee in fear and trembling and say nothing to anybody. The story ends with the fool on the hill's body having mysteriously disappeared and nobody knowing why. We're left to weave the tapestry of God's wisdom onto these dangling threads of foolishness for ourselves. That's what St Paul did in his mission and ministry and what he seems to be trying to do in that letter to Corinth. The foolish cross of Christ turns out to be the place and means of our forgiveness, the prime exemplar of mercy for a merciless world, the ultimate expression of divine wisdom and love. I read this week about the foolishness of a family called Stapleton from the USA. The father of the family, Fred, was murdered in 1974 by a man called Billy Neil Moore who pleaded guilty to his killing, was convicted of murder and duly sentenced to death by electrocution. He came to faith whilst on death row and wrote to the family seeking their forgiveness for his wrongdoing. A Christian family themselves, they wrote back to forgive him. A relationship was struck up. He came quite close to death over the next 16 years, just seven hours away on one occasion when after nearly three days in the condemned cell on 24-hour suicide watch, a further reprieve was sought and gained at the request of the Stapleton family, who had found a brother in Billy Neil Moore and couldn't face further bereavement. Again, as a direct consequence of their declaration of forgiveness, his sentence was commuted to a lengthy term of imprisonment, much of which he'd already served, and he was then paroled. 
Thanks to the foolishness of the Stapleton's extravagant forgiveness, he now counsels those on death row and is a Pentecostal minister. When he was on death watch those three days, a group of well-wishers were praying for clemency for him. He heard of this and wrote to them, asking them not to seek clemency for him until they had shown clemency themselves on all who had offended them. The forgiveness of others in that moment of acute personal threat meant more to Billy Neal Moore than his own life. How like his saviour he had become. A holy fool. There's no real logic to forgiveness in which you take the hit for whatever you have lost. On the cross, God takes the hit for the wickedness of man. The forgiveness it achieves is a bottomless well of mercy. The forgiveness it exemplifies is astonishing. It is both our salvation and our model. It is Billy Neal Moore's salvation and model. It's the Stapleton family's salvation and model. It is foolish and it is wise. It is weakness and it is strength. It's the gospel of the holy fool. Father, in your foolishness, let us bring peace to a frenzied world. Let us bring abundance to the places of scarcity. Let us bring compassion to the places of apathy. Let us bring forgiveness to the places of condemnation. And let us do these things through the marvelous weakness of the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. Father, as we return to school this week, May we rejoice in friendships renewed. Help us to delight in the opportunity to learn new things and to develop our most treasured skills. And then inspire us to use them for the good of all. In the name of the holy fool who gave his all for our sakes, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. So now go and live foolish lives of forgiveness, mercy and clemency. In the name of the holy fool, Jesus Christ. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen.